there. Welcome back to MVP Business, where we showcase leaders who live through their mission, vision, and passion. I'm your host, Steph Silver, owner of Vine Collective, a marketing, branding, and coaching agency that helps organizations and individuals to clarify their vision and rise to the next level. This episode is part of a local series focused on Wimberley Valley organizations in partnership with Wimberley Valley Radio and brought to you by Ozona Bank. Today's guest is Lou Earl, co-owner of and CEO of Austin Fit Magazine, U.S. Navy veteran, and author. Thank you so much for joining me today, Lou Earl. No, I always you. put your name together. It's just Lou. <laughs> it's Lou. Two last names. Usually confuses people. <laughs> yeah. Well, and here we're in the South, so I'm like, oh, that's a cool name, Lou Earl. I just want to say it together all the time. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So I mentioned in the intro that you're an author. You recently just published your first novel, and I'm very excited to talk about that with you. But first, talk to us a little bit about who you were, how you got started before Austin Fit Magazine. Okay. How far back do you want to go? What makes sense to you? Well, I was born in Philadelphia, a long way from here. Mm-hmm. And I went to school yeah, in the suburbs of Philadelphia and first public school, and then to an Episcopal private school through high school. And then I went to the University of Pennsylvania, which is also in Philadelphia. And after I graduated from Penn, the Vietnam War was going on. And back then, there was a draft, and then there was a lottery. And I had a very low lottery number, which meant that I was likely to be drafted. And so I enlisted in the United States Navy And then spent four years in the military in the United States Navy, ending up the last two years being assigned to the National Security Agency at Fort Meade, Maryland, NSA. And we can talk about that more later. And then after I got out of the military, I started with NCR Corporation, which most people wouldn't remember the original name, which was National Cash Register Company. And they made cash registers. I mean, it was before calculators, (laughs) to be honest with you. And I went with NCR, and at that time, we were living in Washington, D.C. And so I was a salesperson for the company for a number of years in Washington, and then eventually uh, was promoted and moved to the corporate headquarters in Dayton, Ohio, where I had a whole slew of jobs running their education organization, eventually being a general manager over a fairly large division for the company. And then after 25 years of uh, working for NCR, I was offered an opportunity after a dozen interviews (laughs) to come down and work for Dell. So I came to work for Dell Computer in their major accounts area and did a number of different jobs there and then left there four years later. I went with a small web development company for about a year. That company was sold. And then I finally decided after at that point would have been 30 some years that I wasn't going to work for anybody else. And that's when in 2004, I purchased Austin Fit Magazine from the original founder and then have owned that company ever since. But my darling wife, Lynn, is now the publisher of the magazine because I'm working on some other things. In the interim, I did consulting work and some other things like that. But that's kind of the stream of consciousness of Mm -hmm. uh, running through a long, long time. What made you decide to leave Dell? To move to Dell? To leave Dell oh, and, to leave and Dell. go to a smaller company. Well, I guess a number of things. One of the executives that I had worked with, who was on the same level at Dell as I was, 
had started another smaller company. And it seemed to me that I've been working for multi-billion dollar companies my whole career. NCR was about a $6 billion revenue company. And Dell, when I joined it, it was probably, I'm imagining, remembering maybe $14 billion. I mean, it was significantly larger, although much younger, because NCR was the oldest computer and is the oldest computer company in the world. It was, I think, founded in 1894, selling cash registers. Later, we made mainframe computers and a lot of uh, computing systems. So the opportunity to go with a smaller company seemed like something that I should try doing. And I did that for a short period of time. Dell was growing dramatically, and I had a great time at Dell. It was a wonderful place to work. But I just thought I'd try something a little different. Mm -hmm. I've been there a few times as well. (laughs) Did you see yourself as an entrepreneur when you were in those big organizations? Like You hopped and moved around and had a lot of different roles, but there's a big difference between working for the man or even working for a smaller company and then going off and doing it on your own? Well, you're certainly right about that. I wouldn't say I'd thought of myself as an entrepreneur while I was with these large companies. Having said that, I never regret working for both those companies. They were very sophisticated. It was an MBA about five times over. And so when I first started with NCR back in the 70s, and made my way from salesperson to district manager, for example, in Washington. I had about five salespeople working for me, and I had what we used to say in the industry is P&L authority. So profit loss authority meant I managed most of the financials, not all of them. There were certain things that NCR didn't let me control, like training dollars, for example, because they didn't want me to make profit and use training money for profit, which is an interesting thing. NCR was very sophisticated that way. They knew the psychology of management, and they knew if you've got somebody who's got a profit objective, and we were very motivated to make those numbers, then we would do it any way we could. And so if we were taking something we should be investing in and putting it over into the profit line, that wasn't a good thing. So simple little lessons like that carry on. And In NCR, I had so many different functional jobs, and they were all new to me. So the good news was you have a certain amount of resources and support. It's a little different than entrepreneurism, but we were given problems to solve. I mean, when I ran the Worldwide Educational Organization, I had to put together an annual plan, a strategic plan. I had to present it to a vice president or a senior vice president, ultimately to even higher levels than that, like the chairman's level for some things. And that had to make sense. And it was like running a business. So I think the best job I had at NCR was being a general manager because that was the closest to being a complete entrepreneur. The only difference was I didn't control things like building a product. That product work was done by a different organization. But all the sales work, the facilities, maintenance of equipment, all of that came under me. And I had 2,000 people and a $400 million objective in revenue. So it was, you can say, well... Did I feel like I'm an entrepreneur? My offices were separate. Now, I did have corporate people I had to report to, but every entrepreneur at some point in time, if they grow at all, is going to have a board of directors. And so that was not all that unusual. Having said all that, uh, and so I think it was an incredible education, and I could never have managed Austin Fit well if I hadn't had that experience, not only just in the managing of the financials, but all the HR work that we did and everything else. So the big difference is the resources. Mm-hmm. That's oh, the that's, huge that's, difference. <laughs> that's the big difference. And if I wanted to do something with HR, I could call up an HR director that worked for me. But when you start a small business or you're in a small company, 
the generalization is much greater and the specialization is much less. And of course, that has benefits and disadvantages. But so in some ways, I never thought of that about myself as an entrepreneur, and I've known many. And there's a degree of risk-taking in being an entrepreneur that is not as apparent in a larger company. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. I think there's so many lessons in that. A lot of young people you know, have big ideas, and the word entrepreneur is so much more widely spread and used, and everyone thinks they want to go out and start their own new Dell or whatever it sure. might be, their startup whether it's making apps or whatever it is. And I think knowing that putting in the time and learning from someone who is already doing it well, learning all the different levels, you never know when those lessons are going to come back around for you, even if you don't plan to work for a large organization forever. Or even if you do, you don't know where you're going to land in the long run. Right, right. No, you sure don't. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. So what made you decide to purchase Austin Fit magazine? Well, everything's a story, you know. I had decided to leave the smaller web development company. Well, again, they were sold, and I said, this is a great time to transition out and do something else. So I started looking for, at first, I discussed with my oldest son maybe putting together a company. He was doing a lot of writing. He was getting his PhD. He was located in New York. And again, it's ironic that it was writing, but we talked about doing a brokerage for writers because he was doing some contract writing. And I said, well, you know a lot about writing. I know a lot about business. So maybe we could figure out a way to do that. It's kind of oriented to doing a family business. I wanted to do that. So we dabbled with that discussion. I started to frame out a value proposition and think about how the revenue sources would be for that and how that would work. And at the same time, Lynn and I started looking around for companies to buy as another alternative. And we looked at all kinds of companies from roofing companies. Didn't matter to me what company it was, to be honest with you, because I was going to be involved in the demand side in terms of understanding that because I spent a lot of time in sales, not marketing, but sales, which is a big difference. And then eventually my son decided to move down here and he said, and he was the one who found Austin Fit for sale. And I said, well, why do we do that? But it was a journalistic endeavor. And he really convinced me, well, this is what we should do. So I succumbed and said, mm-hmm. okay. Now, it wasn't that I was against writing or journalism or anything else. I had been looking more in a more physical product kind of product and service area than journalism. But we decided to do it. And after a lot of negotiations, we purchased the company, as we said, in 2004. And then I brought him in, obviously, and he was the editor-in-chief. And my youngest son graduated from UT some years later and then brought him in. So that's how it all kind of started. Did you have a vision of what it would be as your business when you started it? Or did you want to continue and carry it on as it was? No, we didn't carry it on as it was. The founder was a woman, very capable, very small staff. Everything was pretty much contracted out except for the sales part of it. And it was very cosmetically oriented. And we were much more interested in health and wellness. So we immediately started to shift the focus of the magazine's content to more of health, fitness, wellness, and exercise and nutrition. Now, the cosmetic market is very lucrative. So we certainly didn't give up on that. But we meant to really grow the the mix more in that other side, which is what we did. And we were very successful at doing that over time because there's a large need for those disciplines. And the mission of the company was and is to make people healthier and fitter. 
and have not just pretty, not just pretty. And although there are cosmetic products that certainly can help you be healthier, we just saw the mission more as wellness in that case. That's wonderful. I love that. And you mentioned hiring on your two sons, and there have been changes in that as well. How has running a business as a family, as opposed to a corporation, changed your thoughts about family business and running an organization in that way? I would say that when you start a business with a family in mind, as you were saying about young people and how they say, oh, well, we'll start a product, start a business. I was very naive about that in the sense that there are complexities, to be frank, that you don't imagine in terms of conflict, in terms of all kinds of things that come up in business that may not necessarily come up in a family situation normally. So I would say you have to be very careful when you start a family business. And I've talked to some very successful family businesses and founders of family businesses in this area on this very topic. And many of them have expressed some of the same concerns I have about it. And none of my sons are in the business now, to be honest. And that's because they've become interested in other things. And there were conflicts in the company. In most cases, between Lynn and I or something like that, we've had a lot of time to figure those things out. But sometimes even between my sons would get into conflicts. They had different roles. Those roles naturally can conflict. And they do in business. But in a big company, you have different ways to resolve those. In a small company with family relations and all that goes with that, you have to be a little bit more careful about that. Now, my training in all my years, I treat businesses as business. So I'm pretty hard on that. So when I discuss with my sons what roles they should play, ultimately, I made those decisions. And the way I define those responsibilities, I define those responsibilities. But if those responsibilities are not always performed, then you have to decide how you're going to handle that. And that cannot be any different for your family than any other employee. I mean, that's a rule I just won't break. That's just not right. It may not even be legal, but to me, it's not an issue about legality. It's an issue about equity and fairness to all employees. And that's a balance you have to find if you have a family and a business, whether it's your children or your spouse or partner or whatever. So there definitely are complexities to a family business that I think are often not considered by the people that get into them. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do it mm -hmm. because there are huge benefits as well. I mean, I think the legacy of a family business, You, I would tell you this, while my two sons are not in the business today, if you were to have them in this room behind this mic and you said to them, what was your experience like and was it important to where you are today? There would be absolutely no question that they would have a very difficult time, I think, having it, not that they couldn't have achieved it, but the education that they learned being in that business more as entrepreneurs, because that was a small company or is a small company, was invaluable to how they've done. And they've both done very well in their own areas now, mm -hmm. which I'm very glad to say. Yeah. I know having talked with a lot of small business owners, there's usually a husband and wife dynamic, there's kids, there's generational changes. Right. And it does seem like the most long-term success comes from a clear delineation of roles, an understanding of one decision maker at the end of the day. And that can get emotional at times, I'm sure. Well, that became especially complicated as I began to withdraw from the company. And they were essentially running it together. And so the execution becomes challenging. And even when you're in charge, it is difficult sometimes. It's just very hard to treat 
your children exactly the way you might operate in a firm where you don't have relationships with the people. Where you don't have to have Christmas with them. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. Or Thanksgiving or whatever. Just a regular dinner. right. Mm -hmm. Right. But we got through it. And at the end of the day, of course, the other thing is that I think if you come into an entrepreneurial family business like that, and you've come from a formal education in a larger company, you don't realize sometimes the difference. And so you tend to approach your family the same way. But as soon as you do that, you start to see that they're not experienced. They don't see themselves that way. So you have to look at it from both perspectives. This is my family's company, and they've never been in a more formal environment, and they may not think of themselves quite the way you think they should think of themselves. Mm -hmm. And so they respond differently. Absolutely. Well, I know having built an agency in Austin, we hired a lot of people right out of college and it's wonderful and exciting and they all have their ideas and they all want to have ownership. And even in that dynamic that I personally experienced, since they didn't have the experience of working in a larger corporate space, we had a family dynamic and there was a lot of room to put in their, their ideas and their opinions and to grow and help grow it. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of things that they don't know. Right. And if they don't know that they don't know yet, it's really easy for those emotions to get in and to not be able to see. And then if you have to say, well, it's kind of like the parent saying, because I said so. <laughs> at the end of the day, you just say, well, that's just the way it is. And the other, the really other dynamic that, that you run into, and this is more of my definition of wisdom is not age. It's Mm -hmm. transactions. So if you put somebody in a bubble and they're 80 years old, they know nothing. If you put a street smart person out there and they've gone through a lot of transactions, they know a lot. And so everybody has a different set of transactions. And so I would install things in the company that were very sophisticated. I mean, I wrote all the HR systems. I wrote the way we did the accounting. I had reviews. I put in a quote unquote management system, which I learned lots about back in my time with both Dell and with NCR. And those processes all link horizontally and vertically in a company, whether it's big or small, they're there. So I would get feedback like this is bureaucratic or this is, we don't need all this stuff. Well, the reason those companies are successful when they're big is because they figured out how to do those things. And so you get a lot of pushback because people don't really appreciate the sophistication that can go into actually running smaller companies without the bureaucracy. I was very sensitive to bureaucracy because I had lived through a lot of it. And no matter how good a company is, it creeps into the frameworks of large companies. And unfortunately, a lot of times the way that's handled by companies are reductions in force. And NCR, I love them, but they reduce their force every year. But a part of the way they kept control over headcount growing too fast I mean, there were lots of other ways, but they knew that they had to call the employee base because there were non-performers. Now, it was all done on based on merit and performance, or at least to to the extent that that's possible. But those kinds of systems are difficult for younger people to understand and understand the value of until they start to grow and then things start to fly apart because you don't have them. So I'm a big believer in taking history, learning from the experience of those transactions, and then implementing them sensibly, and you have to prioritize them. So you have to determine where you have the biggest gaps that affect performance of the business, and then that's where you focus putting in those more sophisticated systems, and you do that over time. But it's, talk about consulting, that's where the consulting side comes in. 
Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, I've seen the same thing. No matter how small or large the business, the better the systems are, the easier growth and answering questions <clears throat> is. And also knowing what your vision and your mission is, you can make those decisions and those processes align to all of those things. So what's the hardest decision that you've had to make so far in all of this? You have this family business, you have the systems in place, you've gone kind of in and out of leadership, the leadership of Austin Fit Magazine. What's been the hardest decision you've had to make in that role? Well, I think the toughest thing that we faced was when the kids decided they wanted to move on. My oldest son did that first. He wanted to form his own company, which he did. And I'll give him a plug, Bounce Marketing in Austin, Texas. Very successful. And he started it with his wife, although she has another occupation. And that actually was birthed while he was at Austin Fit. He was thinking about that idea. So he decided to leave, and that left a pretty big gap. And I had to fill that pretty quickly. My younger son did step in, and we were doing a huge event in Austin called the Austin Fittest, which was a combine, which is uh, very unusual where people take fitness tests, essentially. And it was extremely popular, very successful. And they compete, people compete. And then we put out an issue called Austin Fittest. And that's how we figured out who they were. Instead of just voting, we had done that, but it was just a vote. Who do you think's the fittest? And everybody wrote in their friends and that was fine. And everybody was interested. And again, Austin Fit's very hyper-local. So people really want to read about what's going on in Austin like this. So my younger son, Alex, stepped in, did a wonderful job. But then eventually, when we sold that event, and he became very involved with the company that bought it, and they offered him a very nice job. So mm -hmm. he decided that that would be a very interesting change for him. And so then Lynn and I had to say, oh, oh, no more, not, well, it's a family business, but now it's significantly. And I was doing a lot of consulting work at that point because I had backed away so that's when Lynn had to take over the publishing side. And she was very creative, but my biggest concern has always been revenue. So I'm a business guy. And so sales is, if you don't have revenue, don't have anything. So it was a difficult decision how to move forward with doing that kind of thing. And whether we should even keep doing the, the business was a decision when the kids weren't involved, because my vision was always to basically withdraw from the company at some point. I mean, I'd already been working for 40 years, so <laughs> mm -hmm. that was probably the toughest one for me. Do you currently plan to continue holding on or have Lynn, like you said, as the publisher and, and running a lot of the business now, or is it something that you think that you'll sell in the near future? Oh, I think, well, we brought in another partner. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, ultimately, we know that we're going to have to withdraw. I mean, Lynn's trying to reduce her activities. And so our partner is a key part of that strategy. And we saw that coming about two or three years ago and started to work on that because at some point you just can't keep doing it. And I mean, I believe in the company, I believe in its mission or else I wouldn't have gone in that direction anyway. But I also believe it's a wonderful type of business model. I believe that content is and information in particular is becoming the maybe most valuable commodity you can have. And from running a business, having been in manufacturing organizations, we have no inventory. I mean, we have inventory. It's archival content. I can build a product in 10 minutes. 
I can build it in 24 hours. If I'm lacking in inventory, I can go put it together either out on the street doing an interview like you're doing today. And many pieces of content have no time limit to them. We have training programs that are as good today, archived. I could produce content for months without going out and doing an interview. So there's a lot of value in content. And you know that because you've got a lot every day going through these interviews, you're archiving more and more content. Some of that content will be valuable for a long, long time, whether it's recipes in our case or exercise routines or any number of other things that will still continue to have value. And the business model itself lends itself to enormous growth opportunities, as you can see in companies that we talk about every day, like Twitter. I mean, who would ever thought that 70 words could turn into a multi-billion dollar company overnight? Facebook was a little more complicated, but still a pretty simple idea. The technology behind them is not all that complicated. And today, almost anybody can do it. I mean, that's why software is a good business, because somebody can have a unique idea, develop some code, put it out there, and all of a sudden, boom, you have a... And the growth is... And then you think about the costs that go into building it. It can be costly. I mean, we went out of print during COVID because we couldn't distribute. There were no stores open. There were no place to put them. We were a free publication. And I had known that we would have to go digital at some point. That's not to say that I don't believe in print. I mean, I just wrote a book. I wanted printed, but I knew that there was too much going on, whether it's cutting down trees or just the cost of printing and distribution and being able to access the readership. I mean, my magazine's available in all over the world right now, instantaneously. Think about the production schedule. I used to have to get done two weeks before the first issue came out. Now I can be two days before the feud. So I always knew it would largely go digital. Now there are disadvantages to that too. We're not sitting on the stands out where people just glance over and see Austin fit. That's the challenge to make sure that your brand continues to be available and out there. And that requires marketing. And that's a little different than putting something on. You always can benefit from marketing, but it was a little easier when the the magazine was sitting on 500 stands in locations around the city. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. That's how I came across you the first time, seeing, (laughs) seeing the magazine in the stand, picking it up, digging it home, getting all those articles and tips. And are you mostly digital now? Do you print at all? We do not print now. Now, we can exercise print anytime we want, and we constantly discuss whether we should come out with a quarterly or an annually, and we have all those options because we know how to do it. We know the printers. We know the distribution systems, and our files are set up to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, are the way our application works now, we have the magazine. When you get it, it's a page turner, so there's still that, and the content of the magazine is not the same as our website. We have a very effective website, but I've always believed that the content should be different. In fact, I'd like it to be a lot more different than it is. I'd like the website to be specifically a daily, literally a news, newsy-oriented site that where you refresh it constantly. And then the magazine is your monthly look at what's happened over 30 days. And that's the way it really should be. We're not there yet in terms. So we do leverage content from the magazine because we write some great stories and that that we spend a lot of money on. And I'm not saying we don't on the website, but those are where you really put a lot of time into the editing and all of that and the layout of the magazine. But with the website, it's a lot simpler. But we have the option to print. People have asked us about that. And if you wanted 
if you wanted a printed copy of our magazine, one copy, we can do that. Mm. Now, it's not inexpensive, <laughs> mm-hmm. but we can put out. And we do on certain, like for covers, we'll have people we put on the cover frequently will request, can I get a copy of the magazine? We say, yeah, well, you got it digitally. And they say, yeah, but I'd like a printed one. And we might print up 20 copies or something like that. But we, we used to print tens of thousands of copies, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the beauty of digital. So let's take this time to transition into your book. Okay. Tell me, now you've completed and published a novel. It's a trilogy. This is your first novel? Yes, it is. Yes. Let me read the introduction. Apogee is a Mac Cisco novel opening a trilogy about a worldwide conspiracy. It sets the stage for a social and political inspection by introducing the efforts of ex-Navy SEAL and NSA intelligence agent Mac Cisco, who finds himself in over his head when Team Apogee is called upon to thwart an evil government-busting conspiracy. That is not a light and airy... <laughs> What made you decide to write this novel? Well, as I say, and if you want to see more about this, you can read our magazine this month. Mm -hmm. One of the benefits I have as the owner of the magazine is I said, I want my book to be in my magazine. (laughs) So in Austin Fit this month, in the best of issue, which is one of our big issues, we evaluate all kinds of health and wellness organizations across Austin and people, all the readers vote on them. And we just finished that. Thanks to Lynn, we just finished that issue, and it's out, and it's great. It's uh, the December issue? It's a December issue, and the Austinites love it because they get their certificate. They can print the certificates we send them. You're the number one yoga studio or whatever. So it's a big deal. And so I said, I would like to do an interview. So I did an interview for my magazine, and it's in this issue. So part of it's there. But the genesis of this, and I think, I can't remember if we titled it, Everybody Has a Story, but it's kind of a little bit like that. The first question is, how did I get into writing at all? And I was just, as I said to you earlier, down and doing a TV piece in San Antonio, and I met my brother for lunch, my older brother, who lives in San Antonio. And when we were young, my parents didn't want us to get up earlier than they did and leave the room. I think they were worried about us destroying something. So we had to stay in our room, and we had twin beds, and I might have been seven years old or something. And somehow, when we'd wake up earlier than they did, I would start narrating a story. Now, in my day, it was the Hardy Boys, for example, and stuff like that. So it was always about my brother and I. And then I would just talk about it. And he would wake up. More often than not, when we woke up, he'd say, hey, Lou, tell me a story. So I would do that. So that was kind of an interesting thing. Set that aside for a while. Then when I left the National Security Agency, I was in the Naval Security Group, which is every service has an intelligence group within it. So the Air Force Security Services, the Army Security Agency, and the Naval Security Group. And when I joined the military two years earlier, it never occurred to me that you get job ratings in the Navy and you don't always, you have a kind of have a choice. And I tried to go after the academic choices. I'd graduated from college and I thought, well, maybe I could be a yeoman, which is like writing things. And none of those were available. And interestingly enough, there was a thing called a communications technician interpreter, CTI. I think they've changed the rating or the occupational name. But when I asked the chief petty officer what that was, he didn't know. (laughs) And I said, well, it's communications. That sounds like something uh, kind of cerebral. Uh, (laughs) 
I'll do that. Little did I know that communications technician interpreter meant a linguist. So then I said, well, what language am I signed up for? And they said, Cambodian. (laughs) So that's what I learned for a year in the Navy. And eventually that caused me to be reassigned after being in a different location into the National Security Agency where linguists, the military linguists, are frequently used to transcribe enemy or let's just say enemy or not, but communications from other organizations that are in different languages. And so that kind of got me to the agency. And then two years later, I separated. And I remember going leaving the agency and saying, you know, this was really an interesting and it was a fabulous experience. And I mean, it was the military, but it was very interesting. I mean, where else could you have ever had that kind of experience? And while it has changed, I'm sure, greatly, I thought about that a little later. And in 2004, I was reading a horoscope. And I have it here, but I won't read it. But it was November 27th, 2004. And it starts out and it says, Gemini, which is what I am. Do you have certain talents for writing, dear Gemini? And it goes on. And I forgot all about that. And then later on that year, I decided I'll write. This was in December 13th of 2004. I wrote a spreadsheet with four genres on it. And one of them was suspense. And it says, a young man getting out of the NSA stumbles on a document. It goes on to describe a storyline. Well, a couple months later, I actually wrote four or five pages of a book that I was going to write called Code Word because I was dealing in codes and ciphers when I was in the agency, but I never did anything about it. I wrote five pages and put it away. And it was in 2020 that during the pandemic, and I had written poetry for my anniversaries. So I had written my wife poetry whenever I couldn't go out and buy a gift. I figured, well, this will be (laughs) a good way to satisfy this problem. I'll write a poem. And I've written a lot of poetry. I've written one nonfiction novel, never published, called The Natural Way, which is a short observational novel about making decisions in life. And I just put it away. And I've written one children's book for my grandchildren where I took pictures of all of the animals on our ranch. And then I did little funny poems around each animal, which they kind of like. And then, of course, I own a magazine and I wrote the publisher's letter for a decade. So that was 120 of those. So writing was not a problem, but writing a novel is a whole different thing. And it was in 2020 that I started writing Apogee with all of that kind of getting me to the point of it. But it went back to my days at NSA, but only for the first page. I mean, in other words, we were in and are in a very disruptive time on earth. We have uprisings, we have movements, we have discontent in many, many societies across the planet. And that became the genesis for the basic plot of the book, which is, and my major, which I find also ironic at the University of Pennsylvania, was cultural anthropology. Very useful. (laughs) Actually, in corporate America, it is useful to look at primitive cultures. But it occurred to me that it seemed very unique that all these different cultures at different stages in their development, some developing nations, some less developed nations, are going through very similar disruptions. And a lot of that is technology and communications. But it's a coincidence that doesn't seem possible. And so this is what NSA is faced with. 
through their signal intelligence, they're seeing all of this disruption and they're saying, wait a minute, this may not be just random. This may be something else. And Max Cisco is one of their agents. And so that's where they decide this is too dangerous to ignore and they have to figure out what's going on on the planet. And that's what the reader has to decide too in the book. It's a, still a fair question. Is all of this random? Is it just something that happens? Or is something pulling the strings or somebody or some organization that we don't know about? And so that's what the premise of the book is based on. That's fascinating. Does your opinion match the answer that was determined in the book by Max Cisco? Well, that's an interesting question. As you asked, there are three books. And the first book, well, I wrote the book. I started in August of 2020. I finished it in four months, which is uncanny. Yeah. Especially when you're not a novelist by trade or training. And I'll tell you the story of how that happened. But it did occur to me that this was a reasonable thing. This was credible to bring this premise. So do I believe that it could happen? Yes. Do I believe it is happening? I do believe it is happening, maybe in a different way than the book articulates. Mm -hmm. And the third book is going to be much closer, if I can backtrack a little bit on the books. I wrote the book in, as I said, in four months. It was 450 pages long. In fact, I had to stop it. I had to end it. I didn't know how to end it because I don't write that way. I don't outline anything. I let the, like I did when I was a child telling a story, I don't know what the next line's going to be until it is. So in a way, I believe the book is writing itself. It's just presenting me with images and then I'm putting them down on paper. And that's the way I feel about it. Now you get stuck sometimes, but that's how I write. So I don't know. I didn't know when I started Apogee when it would end, how it would end or where it would go. I did have an idea of what I was, the problem that had to be solved, but that was about it. In fact, the title of the book or the title of the protagonist, Max Sisko, was a combination of my middle name, which is Mackenzie. So there's the Mac and a very good friend of mine in San Antonio, whose last name is Sisko. And I just liked the name, even the title Apogee. I liked the word Apogee. I thought that was really cool. And then I looked it up and to make sure I knew what it was, you know, mm -hmm. and it's the perigee and the apogee and in an orbit, but it's also the pinnacle of things. And it kind of fit, but I wasn't overwhelmed by the relationship. It just sounded like that would be an interesting title. And so while I was writing the book, Lynn, I started writing and I brought it in one night to when Lynn and I sat down for a drink in the afternoon, in the evening, not the afternoon, <laughs> but she said, well, read me some, what you've written. So I read about five pages. She said, geez, I really like that. I said, oh, good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. But of course, you are a little biased. And my daughter is living with us. And she said, I like that too. So then I would sit down, write five more pages. And then I'd come in for and every evening. And they'd say, well, did you write any more? And I'd say, yeah. Well, let's read it. Well, I read the entire book as I wrote it over the period of four months. I can't tell you how important that was because they were so supportive and they wanted me to write more. In fact, if I didn't write, they'd say, well, you need to get back in there and write so you can tell us where, where, where is Jasmine, one of my mm -hmm. characters, mm -hmm. and so forth. It's a very motivating thing. So they had a mini series in front of them every exactly. day. They did have a mini series. <laughs> that they like did. old school television where you have to wait and have commercials. <laughs> That's right. They had a commercial. And unfortunately, when I finally decided that I had to end it, and I did, 
I said, well, now, and then I got excited. And so I took it and I have a printer and I put, tried to make it in a format I thought would look, it was not even the right size. And I printed the whole book and then I bound it. I brought a little perfect bind machine, very inexpensive. And I made a copy and I gave the copy to a few of my friends. Of course, it was that thick. Mm. And a couple of them said very nice things to me. And I thought, well, maybe I should publish this book. So then I went to a few literary agents, if you can find them. And they said, first question I had was, how long is your book? I said, well, it's 450 pages, very proudly. <laughs> they said, that won't work. I said, what? What do you mean it won't work? So, I mean, it's, it's not like a 10-page book. This is a real book. They said, no, it's way too long. I said, well, what do I do about that? They said, you edit it <laughs> or you cut it. And I said, it's very difficult to edit your own work because you like it. <laughs> or you wouldn't have written it that way. And so, but I couldn't get it published at 450 pages, just too big for a newbie. Yeah, I mean, Patterson, he could get it published, right? Clancy, sure, but not Lou. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to cut it in half. And I changed the ending of the first book into a cliffhanger, which I tell you in advance. And I changed the beginning of the second book. And the first book's about 280 pages, and the second book's about a similar. And the second book's already written. So that was the good news. I had two books now instead of one, but I had to make those changes and I did that. And so the second book, The Typhon Affair, Typhon was a god with multiple heads and is already completed. It's in editing. It'll be out March of 23. It could have been out now, but we decided, the publisher and I decided that, I think he really suggested that we split them up which is going to produce another one of these, well, what happens now? But it's very short. And then the last book, The Maslow Conspiracy, is now underway. It's about halfway through already. And it's a similar problem, but it's not the same problem exactly. And it's frighteningly realistic. <laughs> I can say that. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how I got started on it and where it's going to go. So you, yes, there is two more books and they're coming very fast. In fact, you'll get all three of them within 12 months which typically would get one book out. So I'm very interested in getting them all out pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And then we'll see where Mac goes from there. I don't know, but I like him, so. <laughs> <laughs> you want him to keep going. When you sat down in the, for writing the first book and came back every day, what was your particular process? You didn't go into it as an author, trained author who knows what they're doing and has their own process. You some will light a candle and make sure that the atmosphere is right and invite the muses or whatever. Did you have a process that you went back to or became comfortable with? To be very candid, I really don't. The process I have is I sit down. I usually have to, if I haven't sat down with it for a while, uh, like I've been working a lot on trying to get this book out. So I haven't been writing much on the third book. I'll have to go back and I'll say, and I'll go through it. I'm becoming better at understanding the difference between where action should happen and where dialogue should happen and so forth. But all these great novelists, and especially in the thriller kind of and spy novel genre, and you know a lot of these characters, the Vince Flynn's like the Jack Reachers, and the, you know, ultimately I'd love to see my books become a movie because that would be hysterical. So I just review it, and I was very fortunate. I want to give a shout out to John Casey. Now, this, there was a John Casey who was a very famous novelist, but this was a San Antonio guy who just actually released the third novel in his trilogy on spies. And he actually started his own publishing company. 
called Fire Publishing, and it, P-H-I-R. And he's publishing for maybe four or five authors. And I knew him, got to know him through a friend of mine in San Antonio. And I didn't get on my knees, but I said, would you be willing to consider publishing my book? So I avoided the query letter. There's a whole process you have to go through to get somebody interested in your book. And it's like becoming famous in Hollywood only a thousand times harder. I think there are millions of books published every year. And there's a lot for these people to go through and decide upon. And so, as John has told me, he said, there's three ways a book that you need to have a successful book. The first is you need a great story. You just can't get away from it if you don't have that. The second is you need great marketing. And the third is luck. Mm. And I'm hopeful I have the first two, and then we'll see if I get lucky. But what you're doing for me here today is one of the most important aspects of getting your novel out there. And he usually asks his writers to get a professional editor to edit his books, but he was kind enough to edit my book. But boy, oh boy, that's a process that, mm. and I, I did try to go through and edit my book. But one of the first things he came back to me with was, why are you using the past perfect all the time? I said, say what? What does that mean? <laughs> I, you know, had gone. You know, uh -huh, John had yeah. gone. No, John went. Yeah. Why do you need to say had gone? I said, I don't know. Because I live Just in Wimberley, Texas, I, and that's you know, the way yeah, I talk. That's the way I talk. <laughs> and that's the way I think. And mm -hmm. so I went through my book, and I said, I got to see this for myself. Mm -hmm. I could not believe the number of times I used those phrases that were completely unnecessary. So you begin to learn these little lessons how the dialogue should be paragraphed, all these things I was completely ignorant of. And then he cut out things that were, in his view, irrelevant. And in some cases, we had discussions about that because you become very attached to certain scenery. The other thing that I have to learn and continue to learn is I have read, if you look at, in my opinion, this is, so I'm not perfect at this, but if you read Clancy, it can take pages to get one scene in covered. Although, and then there are other artists that will do that in a paragraph. So the level of detail that you put into a book is really important. And I think that certain authors have like detail, and I like detail, because I think it creates a better visual for the reader, an image. I want, at the end of the day, the reader to suddenly not even see themselves reading the book. Mm -hmm. I want them to be there, to be witnessing it, or part of it even. And so, I do have a tendency to put significant detail into certain kinds of scenery, like mansion. When I'm discussing a house, I might get into the kind of wood in the walls or the ceiling and go into some description. And that can turn some readers off because it slows things down a little bit. So I have to be careful when I'm going through the mm -hmm. book that I, and when do you pull action in it? When you do character development, for example, my books have a lot of characters and the team Apogee is five people. And you get to know every one of them. And some of them you get to know very, very well. And that's by design. We want you to like them or not like them. And I spend as much time on the villains as I do on the heroes because you want the villains to be a certain way. And all I did was just think about what would a villain be? And the same thing with Max Sisko. What kind of a person would he be? And so I would say I don't have a process, but I'm becoming more and more sensitive to those kinds of rather uh, large issues that you have to start to design into the book a little bit. And you have to say, wait a minute, I haven't had anything really fast or happen in about 10 pages. Maybe I better figure out something or I'm going to lose these people. But then there are other people that just love the imagery. So it's hard to know. I mean, it's such a broad audience.
So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm the type of reader who gets really into it and completely lost. And then at the end of <clears throat> any novel, I feel like I've lost my best friend. <laughs> I'm like, what is my life? I don't even remember anymore. <laughs> I'm so into it. So did you do additional research along the way as you started to write it and go, oh my gosh, I really need a little bit more detail here? Or yeah. Well, that is another fascinating part of writing. I thought a lot about this and talked to John about this too. And the first thing that you do, at least I did, was to write about things I knew. Mm-hmm. And that reduces your research to some extent. But even when you've lived in places, and I've lived at, or been to almost many of the places, so two parts of the book take place here in Wimberley. So if you are from Wimberley, you'll get a kick out of that. In fact, some of the places here in Wimberley are mentioned in the book. Fun. And because I live in Wimberley and I have a ranch, the ranch plays a major part in the beginning of the book and then later in the end of the book. Now, I know lots about my ranch, but the ranch that I describe is not exactly like my ranch, much larger in this case. And then the book goes all over the world, but a lot of it is in the United States where I lived in Washington, D.C. So I know restaurants in Washington, D.C. where I brought characters together like the old Ebbett Grill or some other restaurants in the book. And I'd been there and I'd eaten there, but I had to go back in and I had to say, okay, is it still there? Is it still what I think I remember it being? And I remember going in it. Did they still operate the same way? Down to menus. So there's a lot of research that you end up doing. Now, I took the book overseas. I spent a lot of time in my business career traveling a lot and I went overseas. But some of the places that I have in the book, I didn't go. And for example, New Zealand, I've never been to New Zealand, but I've been to Paris and I've been to Britain. And, and so I could talk a little bit about those. But again, when you get into the detail of painting a scene with two people eating together at dinner, you want to know the restaurant, you want to know what they're eating. At least I do. Mm-hmm. Now, see, again, this gets into that issue of how much detail do you put in the book? I think it's fascinating to say that they ate scallops and shrimp, especially if that's one of the things on the menu. So the research, it can be deep, but yet I don't want to do so much because I want things to be genuine. I want them to be real, but I haven't gotten into places where I was trying to do scientific theory. Well, that's actually not entirely true. In Apogee, there are several scientific, and in Maslow, there are several scientific theorems that are a key part of the problem that is being solved. And you'll see those in Apogee and in Maslow that become very important to how can things be carried out? How are they executed on both sides, which is fascinating. But the research is big. And I have to say, Google has been my friend. And you didn't I, have to fly back to Washington. <laughs> no, I didn't <laughs> to have go to fly to back to Washington. And, and I didn't have to go to the, a lot of those locations, thankfully. I mean, I would have loved to. But. Mm-hmm. And then the other question that I have, because there are a lot of aspiring authors or, or like you were before, people who have written a book and set it aside. What is your marketing strategy other than talking to me and the guy in San Antonio? You <laughs> You're my marketing to strategy. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I said earlier, I'm more of a sales guy than a marketing guy. I understand individual stuff. There's an awful lot to marketing in this day and age. Now, my publisher is really our arrangement doesn't include marketing. He knows how hard that is. That said, he's been extremely helpful because he's marketing his own novels. So I'm building my own website right now, but I'm using his website because he's got my books on it. He's got my background on it and my picture on it, that kind of thing. 
I used my own magazine, but I've got a lot of friends in Austin. The first thing I did was to send my the notification that my published book was out to all my family and my friends who are all over, uh, actually all over the world now, but Philadelphia, a lot of my relatives are up there, New York and so forth. And I sent out this kind of email blast and I got a lot of responses back. And my one first cousin who is a dear man said, I'm reading Patterson, but I'm going to put it down now and get your book right away. And then I just got a call, Lynn and I, yesterday from an old friend that was with NCR when I was there, who I haven't seen in a long, long time, saying, I just finished your book. (laughs) And he said, I loved it. But he said, I want to know what's going to (laughs) happen because he continues. And so I said, well, I guess I could send you the (laughs) digital version of what's in edit. He said, no, no, I'll wait. I'll wait. So that was the first place to start was just people, you know, send it to them, let them know it's happening. And then they can buy the Kindle version. They can buy the book or not. Before I did that, before when I first wrote the book, before I ever had the book actually in print published and I had copies of it, I would send PDFs to certain people. But that was more to say, is this any good? And a lot of people will say, send it to me. I'll read it. But they don't get around to it, which is that nature of the beast. But a lot of them did read it. And that's, I think, without that encouragement, not that I wouldn't have continued to try to publish it, but it certainly helped me, motivate me to do that. Now I'm still exploring. I mean, going on television and promoting your books, book signings, they're hard to get, especially book companies like Book People and others have a lot of people who want to be signed. And I'm talking to some of my friends in Austin about how to do an event and then start to get... And you just need to be fortunate and hit the right person who is in that business. And then maybe something gets viral. But my publisher told me, because he's published maybe half a dozen books, poetry books and everything else. He said, Lou, it's a long, difficult task unless you just happen to get lucky to, no matter how good your book are. I remember years ago going to an off-Broadway show in New York. And when I finished and I'd gone to some Broadway shows, I said, you know, I can't see any difference between these people and the Broadway people. What's the difference? It's luck. These people were so talented, they could do any show. People can be very good. So I'm sure there are wonderful authors out there writing their first book that may be better than some that are out there selling millions of books. You just kind of the way it is. <laughs> got to meet the right people at the right yeah, time, get right. in front of the right people and stay persistent, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've got three books, so I'm going to get them out there. I'm going to improve my odds the best I can. (laughs) So where can people find your book now? You can find it on Amazon and you can do it and go on an Amazon search inside there and do Lou Earl Apogee and it'll come up. Google Play, I think it's on and Barnes and Nobles, you can order books on. I have not yet done an Audible version. I'm a big fan of Audible. I have hundreds of Audible books, and my daughter is blind, and she loves to listen to books as part of one of the benefits of reading to her as I go along. But I would love to do that. That's just a little bit more money. you got to get ready, get a good narrator, but I'd love to put it out on Audible, too. And then anywhere else. I mean, these are the major places. I've been interviewed by Voyage Dallas, by, I think it's uh, Shout Out Dallas. I was on TV in San Antonio, on San Antonio Living yesterday. I'm here today, and I'll probably do another word-of-mouth campaign because I don't realize how many people I haven't sent the thing to. You know, you kind of get your email list, and then you send it out with the links to it and so forth. But there's an awful lot of people that I haven't sent it out to yet, which I'll do. 
And then I'm considering maybe trying to do some kind of an event in Austin where I could get the big thing about having a signing, which I'd love to do, or I'd love to go on a tour and do the kind of things we're doing right here. It's just, that's complicated to do and to manage and everything else. And the main thing is you don't want to do a book signing and have four people show up. That's, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, a, that's a little bit nasty, but <laughs> I'll take the chance if I have to. And I'm sure there are much other, many other ways. One of my friends that did read the book, who's quite knowledgeable in this, said it would be a great screenplay. I mean, it would be a good movie. And that's when you really hit the jackpot. If you Come on, that. Netflix. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pick it up. But, you know, I didn't write it. I mean, it's wonderful to think of. I would have such fun at my age going out and chatting about it like I'm doing with you today. I mean, it's a lot of fun for me. And I think that would just be a nice chapter in one's life to do. But if it doesn't happen, it's okay. The writing itself and the satisfaction I've gotten from just getting through it and doing it. One of the things that I learned over the years in journalism, and at one time I was the chairman of a nonprofit called Badger Dog, which we put out a short digest called American Short Fiction. And we also taught disenfranchised kids how to write prose and poetry. And one of the things I learned was there's a huge crisis in vocabulary in this country. And it really worries me. I mean, 30 years ago, I think the vocabulary was probably 20% better than it is today. And if you can't articulate with precision, it's a very dangerous thing. You know, we're going to be grunting if we're not careful. So while I love abbreviations, we can't give up on our vocabulary. And the other thing that I learned during that time was if you ask somebody what they'd really like to do, a lot of them say, I'd like to write a book. Mm -hmm. Before my mom passed away, I asked her if you had really gotten to do something that you had dreamed of doing you felt like was going to fulfill you, what would it be? And that's what she's, she was an avid reader, always had a book in her hand. And it didn't matter what it was. She had her favorites, but if she wasn't reading, she'd pick up anything. And that's what she said. She would be a writer. Right. She right. would have been a writer. Right. So with that being said, you've followed a couple of directions in your life and you worked for these, well, first of all, the military, then big corporations, then small business, started your own small business. Now you're a published author. Congratulations. Thank you. What would advice would you have for someone out there who is thinking about or on the verge of taking that leap toward their own passion or I, dream? I got a note from my college from the University of Pennsylvania because every year the alumni, and they're doing this piece where they're going out to get all the alumni, 19, I was ninth class of, <laughs> I hate to say this, 1968, and they said, we want you to write a page. It was really cool because they did a book at the 50th, was it our 50th, I guess, alumni thing, which I went back for. They did this big book and they said, we want to update this digitally. And they asked that question. They said, what advice would you give? And I'm trying to remember exactly what I said. But the first thing I would say is take risks, take risks, be careful, but take risks. And one of the things I sometimes think I didn't do enough of was taking risks, even though I, you know, I was in a big company. People think that big companies aren't taking risks. I learned they're very risky. <laughs> but take risks because without that, you're going to lose. But losing and failing are learning. And they're the most important learning lessons I believe you can ever. They're the transactions that help you advance quickly. And doing things right doesn't always teach you anywhere near what doing things wrong. It's just not painful enough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's one of the things I would say. Secondly, I would say stay true to your values. Whatever they are, you're going to have to come up with them. But 
stick to a set of principles and always follow those principles if you really believe in them. And that takes a long time. Things like integrity, keeping commitments. And I worry about that a lot in our culture today because I see these things going away. Now, look at history and transactions. Look at the way the mistakes other people have made. We don't do enough of that. You hear a lot about participation awards. I believe in winners' awards. I believe in losers' awards because we should lose. We all lose. We don't always win. And those lessons are so, so important in life. But again, the values that you establish are the pillars by which you live. And that's, I don't know how you bring up a family without doing that. I mean, I told Lynn, I don't know all the details. I just know the framework. And then you have to fill in the details and you can miss, but that's what learning is about. You will miss. Nobody can teach people everything. So those two things, uh, there was another, but I can't think what that was. It you have to go find the book. Yeah, it was kind of, kind of, yeah. But those are the ones that I really think are important. And so the risk takes you into the entrepreneurship. I think having your own company is a wonderful thing, but it's not an easy journey. And I do believe this. If you're out to make a lot of money, small companies are wonderful. Because if you own a business and it's a good business, I mean, you can make an enormous amount of money if that's your goal. Larger organizations, you can make a lot of money, but you have to get to the very top of those organizations to achieve that or get lucky in one that's a startup or becomes big and then there's a lot of stock options or whatever the issue may be. But in a smaller company, I mean, it's companies that pull in a couple million dollars in revenue can pay an awful lot of money to the owners. So it's a good risk to take if you've got a good idea, but be ready to work very, very hard and long hours which a lot of people don't want to do. I won't say that's not true at big companies because I used to spend 80-hour weeks. And that was about going up the ladder. That was about, I came to conclude early on in my big company career that I wasn't the smartest guy. And I can assure you, you almost never are. There's so many smart people. And so my equalizer was hard work. I said, I'm going to work longer hours. I'm going to put in more time. I'm going to prepare better. I prepared for today. I don't go into a meeting without a lot of preparation. And I do it in my car. I used to do sales pitches looking and driving from <laughs> to and from work. In the early days, we had to memorize them, if you can imagine. That's bad if you forget where you are <laughs> in the mm -hmm. speech. But those are some of the things that I think would be important to somebody. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your time and your story. And I'm excited about the pace of your book because, yeah, nobody wants to be left on a cliffhanger too long, especially now <laughs> when all of our apps preload or reload is without hitting a button. Right, right, <laughs> We're ready right. to be preloaded for your third. Well, I so much appreciate you giving me this opportunity. I want to make one other comment about the book. One thing I think authors should think about is the enormous investment that readers like you put in. It isn't the 15 or 20 bucks that they pay. I mean, that's an investment. It's the time that the reader takes in selecting your work and then the enormous time they put in reading through it and consuming it. And I don't think enough people realize what a commitment that is until you try to write a book and have people read it. So my thanks to your listeners and to anybody that takes a chance on Apogee. Go out and pick it up. Let us know, guys, what you think. Thank you all so much for listening. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Lou. 
Thank you, Seth. If you liked this episode and, and the Chris. others, and Chris is here, Chris with Wimberly Films is filming the whole thing. Thanks to him as well. If you liked it, tell your friends, follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn. The mission of MVP Business is to dig deep into the lives of true leaders so that others can follow, knowing that the path isn't always easy, but the journey is worth it. So enjoy the day and live with passion.